We will find Christ today in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And I'll read the text for us in just a moment, but as you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story straight from the annals of history. They called this entity the Holy Club. The year was 1729, the place, Oxford University. This club, led by the brothers Charles and John Wesley, consisted of a band of young men committed to living as Christians in the most methodical, regular, and systematic of ways. And like any serious club, there were rules. And the first rule of this club was that you essentially had to spend every waking hour of the day doing holy things. Other rules included fasting until 3 p.m. on Wednesdays and Fridays, receiving Holy Communion once per week, daily discussions on the Greek New Testament and Christian classics, visiting prisoners and the sick, and then you had to regularly bring your life under the strict review of the group, uh, analyzing areas such as your Bible reading, prayer, witnessing, even your sleep routine, your honesty, uh, and how humble you were. Now think of that last one for a second. (laughs) Now, you know, I know college is supposed to be the, the best days of your life, but I just can't imagine this group being known as a happy club by any means. No one was beating the doors down to get in. In fact, The group never got above 25 people. It was kind of a drag. But the two leaders in particular, they just wanted to identify with the Lord. They wanted to be marked as holy. And so they actually ended up giving up on this particular club and said, you know what, we need something a little more radical. We want to be even more devoted to God. And so what they decided to do was to leave their home of England and actually travel to Georgia in 1735 with General Oglethorpe so that they could evangelize the Indians. They, they went into missions. They gave up everything for the sake of missions. They really wanted to display that they were one of God's special group. And what's fascinating about this particular attempt to show themselves to be in God's special club is that it was a miserable failure. Despite all the extravagant attempts, uh, they were still unhappy. They were finding no joy or peace or satisfaction in Christ. In fact, they got there and both of them realized and wondered whether or not they were even in Christ in the first place. In abject frustration and failure, they actually returned back to England, and John would write in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? It's sad. And at the same time, it's insightful. Even though this club was religious, even though it was Christian, The special club, identified by the doing of religious stuff, at that point in time, ended as a total failure. Now, the rest of that story is yet to come. But in the meantime, I want you to mull over this frustration and failure for a moment. Uh, Can you imagine that disappointment of trying to have, like, put yourself out there and really try to live for God and to really... Like identify yourself with his people and just to find it to be one miserable failure, absent of fun, full of frustration. I think that this kind of spiritual failure happens all the time. And frankly, these things have been happening for a really long time. People make this commitment to uh, get in with the right crowd, to start coming to church, to get back into church, to turn over a new leaf. And while the surge of commitment initially feels good, 
there comes this point in time when all the religious stuff ends up being about as enjoyable as an expensive yet underutilized gym membership. Follow the parallels for a moment. People feel guilty for not going to the holy club. They feel like a failure when they get to the holy club. And then we know that the holy club is costing us dearly, but trying to cancel is just too daggone difficult. That is the experience of some. They take their their best try at being religious, and it ends up being a miserable failure. And this is not a modern phenomenon. Back in Paul's day, there were some homemade holy clubs. One of them that we'll see in this text in particular were labeled the Judaizers. These were people, by the way, who did not deny believing in Jesus. They only added to it some ceremonial stuff, namely circumcision. But as church history would continue, this group would die down. But believe it or not, another group would take its place. A new holy club. This would be something of like a big box franchise. It would become pretty popular and dominant for about a thousand years. Today we know it as the Roman Catholic Church. The way that homemade holy club works is that, yes, you believe in Jesus, but if you really want God's grace, you add to it the sacraments of penance and baptism and holy orders and confirmation, and the list could continue. But around the 1500s, even this big franchise began to lose its momentum. The combining forces of the Enlightenment and the Protestant Reformation drove this holy club movement to more of like a small business approach. (laughs) Now you actually had all kinds of of new holy clubs popping up in which people would be able to identify themselves as being religious apart from Jesus. Sometimes they're kind of financially motivated. You have people who are involved with charities or philanthropy or social work. That becomes like the mark or the identifier of somebody who's really religious. Sometimes they're kind of uh, cultural or ritual. They can even be kind of evangelical in some ways. Uh, Believing in Jesus is good and it's important, but if you're really holy, uh, you're very much involved in personal devotions and obligatory church attendance and, and tithing and praying before meals and doing some special form of education with your children. And then we have political holy clubs. People have for a long time now, begun to like romanticize their political involvement and see it as their way of serving God. It can happen for conservatives as they think that they're fighting against the evils of society. And I even just saw a documentary a few days ago that reminded me that even political progressives think that they are fighting a religious battle. <laughs> it's a holy club. It's homemade. But according to the inspired scriptures... Who really belongs to the holy club? Who really, according to God, is in the in crowd? What are the essential boundary markers of inclusion into God's special group? To those who want to know what it looks like to be in God's group, not one of our own making, Paul has something to say. Look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." As those of you who have been here with us the last few weeks know, Paul is writing to his fellowship of the gospel. Think Tolkien's fellowship of the ring. It's a special group. It's a special society identified not only with the gospel itself, but seeing it advance. And naturally, you would expect somebody who has a common relationship with another on the basis of the gospel to be concerned about how they're thinking and processing the gospel. So Paul, through the letter, has been identifying all kinds of threats to this one thing that holds them all together. The first threat he covered in verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, and he said, hey, you need to watch out for opposition. People will push back against you. 
all of chapter 2, he addresses another major concern for the gospel, and that is division. Even people playing on the same team can get self-interested from time to time and be distracted from the advance of gospel work. He continues now in chapter 3 to address two other major concerns to this partnership in the gospel. The first one we'll see in verses 1 through 11, and that is the perversion of the gospel. It gets twisted, it gets distorted in some way. And then in verse 12, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to uh, actually uncover defection from the gospel and what that looks like when somebody tries to go away from it. So what we need to understand here is, first and foremost, is that Paul is trying to preserve the gospel from the perversion that could naturally happen as other people become uh, interested in injecting their own ideas into it. And he's saying, you're going to need to be on guard in this. And here is the general command. He says, if you want to guard against any perversion of the gospel, the number one thing that any of us have to do is to finally rejoice in the Lord. We need to find our highest happiness and joy and satisfaction in the Lord who has already been defined in this epistle as Jesus Christ himself the one who entered into humanity as the Son of God and conquered death and overcame the grave to provide like forgiveness for all who would believe in him. He says, rejoice in this. Find your joy in this. Some people find it interesting that Paul says, finally, my brothers, even though there's two more chapters to go. Kind of reminds me of the jabs that sometimes people will take at long-winded preachers like myself. I heard the story of a little boy who was sitting in the sermon, and he leaned over to his dad and said, "Uh, Dad, what did the preacher mean when he said, finally? And the dad responded, absolutely nothing. (laughs) You know, the truth is here, the word finally doesn't mean that he's wrapping up, that he's coming to the end. When you look and see how this thing is used... Often in Paul's writings, he says, moving on, I'm going to cover the rest of the stuff that I need to cover. And here's what you need to know, Philippians, you need to be happy in Jesus. You need to find delight in the Lord. This is a big deal to him. This is your greatest antidote to the perversion that could naturally infect the gospel. Matthew Henry, the classic Puritan commentator, explained it this way. He says, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. That's a great way to put it. When we are so satisfied in Jesus and in Jesus alone, it wards off those things that would corrupt the gospel. It's interesting that here at our church, if you're visiting today, we we have these kind of three things we, we want to see for each of our members. And, the, and they go in sequential order. We want to see people, if they're going to be a follower of Christ here, delighting in Christ, serving one another, and advancing the truth and love. I've, I've been having that conversation with a few, and uh, probably three times in the last two months, I've had a church member say to me when I was asking them those questions, especially the first one, delight in Christ, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, frankly, friends, I plagiarized it straight from this verse. I mean whatever Paul means. What Paul means is this. Question number one, are you happy? Yes or no? (laughs) All right. If yes, is the reason you're happy because of your relationship with Jesus or something else? You could be happy because work is going okay for you right now, or because you're healthy, or because your family's doing well, or you could be happy primarily because Jesus has rescued me. I am in relationship with him. That is what Paul is ultimately arguing for here. He says, this is going to be your greatest talisman to the perversion that would encroach upon the gospel. You need to be careful to rejoice in the Lord. There is safety in this. People have known this for a really long time, by the way. Familiar maybe with uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was this list of questions and answers that a bunch of godly men got together and said, hey, if you know what, we're going to raise up the next generations of Christians in England. Everybody's got to know these things. And you know what question number one for any basic discipleship endeavor with a child was going to be for these guys who put together this list? Question one. 
what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For all those who think that Christianity is some type of miserable and hapless holy club, you're missing the point. It is actually about satisfaction, delight, and joy in Jesus. It is something that is tangible and real. It is our highest priority in our discipleship to find satisfaction in the Lord alone. And Paul says, he adds to this in verse 1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. You know what this implies? He talked about this all the time. He's like, guys, I know you've heard this before, but I want you to know it doesn't hurt me to spill a little more ink on this topic because it is safe for you. It it is protective mechanism for you. If you can understand that Jesus alone is your highest joy, there will constantly be other people who try to sneak in and steal that joy from you. And so that's what Paul's doing here. What he's doing is he is trying to protect their joy in Jesus alone. He is trying to protect against the perversion of the gospel. And here's how he'll protect us today. He's going to give a warning and a reminder. A warning and a reminder. The warning is in verse 2. The reminder is in verse 3. In verse 2, he will warn us against what I will call uh, the artificial holy club, the the fake holy club, the foe. Uh, that which is counterfeit. And then in verse 3, he will remind us of the real holy club, the genuine one, the the one that matters. So look at verse 2 again. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now remember I told you that Paul had a specific group of enemy that dogged his steps in those days. There already was a pretty powerful holy club in place different from the one that was taught in the scriptures. I called them earlier Judaizers. These guys, just so you're aware, were fine with Jesus. They just said, if you really wanted to be holy, if you really wanted to be spiritual, if you really going to be one of the covenant people of God, you would believe in Jesus and... Get circumcised if you were a man and follow the dietary restrictions of the New Testament and obey the Sabbath. They were were fine with believing in Jesus, but the the peace de resistance, the, the main thing that they wanted from you was to make sure that at the end of the day, you were circumcised and that you were externally a Jew. And Paul is writing to this group about this group in particular. He's saying, watch out for these guys. They will encroach upon you. And what he does here is searing. I mean, sometimes we think that the New Testament is just so so clean and pretty and polite. Paul is not pretty and polite here. He uses some very graphic language. I think that if we were just to take this little section of chapter 3 and make it a movie, it'd probably be rated PG-13. Because what he does in this particular case is very inflammatory language. He's speaking of a well-respected religious group, and he is using insidiary terms to describe them. And he does it in an interesting way in the Greek. He uses the, the Greek letter kappa, like what we would think of as K, to alliterate each of these things. So you think of it uh, as this, uh, look out for dogs, kunos, look out for the evil workers, kakus ergatas, uh, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, katatome. It's almost like if I were to say it this way, if I were to try to alliterate it on my own, look out for the defiled, the disobedient, the destructive. If somebody alliterates something, they want you to remember it. He is making a political statement. He wants the people to know that there is this clearly defined group of people who are dangerous, and they need to keep that in mind. So let's look at this attack in this way. We'll just look at each one of these. First of all, there's what I called... Uh, the defiled. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, the term look out just that means to, to look out. Sometimes it carries the idea of warning. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily do so. The, the context has to determine that. So if I say to you, for example, look out for the butterflies, nobody's like shaking in their boots. You just know like, oh, there might be some butterflies on this path. But if I say, look out for alligators, Okay, now we know that lookout has a different uh, sense of alarm. (laughs) 
The, the object here determines what Paul is saying. Like He's saying, look out, beware, be careful about. There is danger in the area coming upon you, so you need to identify these potential threats. And the first one blows our minds, especially as Americans, because we think, look out for the dogs. I love dogs. I mean, really, in a culture that spends millions of dollars per year on these animals, I, am, I want you to know I am fighting with everything within me not to make a moral point on this. For those of you who know my disgust for dogs. Um, it's biblical. That's all I want to say is biblical. Because you know in that particular context, like in a Greco-Roman culture, with Jews especially, dogs were just filthy carrion that roamed the earth. You could think of them like coyotes. They ate trash. They were not pets. I could basically say, look out for the rats. I mean, that was the way that it worked. If you look in the Old Testament, for example, the word dog is never used in a positive sense. They were defiled animals according to the Old Testament, and they're only applied to human beings as a pejorative term. It is basically communicating that these people are ceremonially defiled. You stay away from them. They are polluted in some way. They get universally bad press in the Bible. And Paul is pointing to this particular group and he's saying, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the rats. Be on the lookout. Look, I grew up in, um, in North Carolina surrounded by fields. Sometimes it was cornfields, sometimes it was soybeans. But any time they were going to like, harvest those things, we knew to be on the lookout. Because what happens is all those mice begin to run in from uh, those machines. But, you know, there was just little field mice. It really wasn't that big a deal. We knew to be on the lookout. We had cats. We had mouse traps. But it was when I got here to Florida that I really recognized the revulsion within me for these animals uh, when I came across black rats, or what are called palm rats. I mean, they, like, hang out here. They hang out in people's houses. I didn't even realize, like, anytime there's a palm tree, there probably is a bunch of rats up there, and you don't know it. Surprise! <laughs> we didn't know that. So, I mean, you know, I'm always telling my kids to close the door because I'm worried about the air conditioning getting out. But now I know I have a better reason to keep the door shut because these rats will get in. And we had one in. I've mentioned this before, and I will not rehearse this again, but it was a traumatic time in my house for three days knowing that that thing was in there and we couldn't figure out how to get it out. Don't worry, I got it. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, ever since then, my family has been on the lookout for rats. They look up in those trees, they're looking to see if those things are running up and down, they're more careful to shut the door, still not as careful as I want them to be. (laughs) But we're on the lookout. We know that this is an imminent threat. This is something that could encroach at any time. What Paul is saying here is that this form of legalism this, this type of adding something on to what Jesus has done, it, it lives in the trees around you. It is something that could encroach at any time. You need to be on the lookout. Look out for the dogs. Look out for also, what does he say? The evil workers. Now, this is adding insult to injury because now these guys, this religious movement, thought of themselves as purveyors of good works. And yet here... Paul says, no, 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 you look out for the guys that do evil work. They're doing evil work. They were doing the opposite of that which God has actually called them to do. And you know what? It often happens this way, that the intentions do not purify the actions. The intentions do not purify the actions. Just because somebody dresses nice and they say that they love God and they're intending to do good works doesn't mean that they're actually doing good. They may trounce around your neighborhood in nice-looking white shirts and name badges and say, hey, we're just trying to spread good. But you know what the Scriptures would say? The purveyors of evil. You know, a similar term is used in that scary passage in Matthew 7, 23, where Jesus says, there will be some people who will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, these Lord, Lord people, they, they cast out demons. 
And he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The religious types, they can be the ones who are actually purveying bad works. He says, look out for those guys. Look out for the rats, the dogs. Look out for the purveyors of evil. But if you really want to know what this group was like in that context and culture, you look at the last one where it says there, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. (laughs) The word mutilate there comes from the same word that's normally translated circumcision. Now you think circumcision, mutilate, they look like two totally different words in English. You're right, in English they do. In the original language, they both have the main root of tamao, which means to cut, to cut. Circumcision is prefixed by the peri, which means to cut around, like think of periscope. So that's your normal idea of circumcision, that Old Testament ritual that was applied to little boys on the eighth day. But here, something different. He he says, it's kata tima'o. It is actually like an intensifier. Instead of just saying to cut around, it is to cut thoroughly, to cut excessively, and hence the word to mutilate, to mangle. In some translations, to castrate. It is a violent word. Paul is intentionally being inflammatory with these guys because he's saying, by insisting on this physical act, they are destroying people. That's why I said we're on the lookout for the defiled and for the depraved and the destructive. These people are destructive. They are actually harming people. They are mangling people by insisting on some type of external sign of holiness. They stand in contrast with those that Paul will mention in verse 9 who find their righteousness in Christ alone. He said, Justin, we're supposed to be on the lookout for these people. I don't think I've ever had anybody try to talk me into this. (laughs) Especially women. I'm thinking, nope, that conversation's never happened. Thank you. But you know that there are people who constantly go around saying, That it's fine if you believe in Jesus, that's good and that's right and that's appropriate, but don't forget to add this or that. It's the Jesus plus versus the Jesus alone mentality. That is prevalent in our cultures. There will be those who are crawling about. There are movements that are out there here in Naples on the internet in Christian bookstores that would actually say, Faith in Christ alone, faith in Christ plus. So we must beware, beware of those who say that your righteousness comes through faith in Christ plus the sacramental system of penance and confirmation and baptism and holy communion. We need to look out for those who say that acceptance before God is rooted in faith plus daily devotions and multiple service per week church attendance and what you wear and what you drink and how you educate your kids and how you vote. We need to be on guard against those who define righteousness as faith in Christ plus social justice and political activism and philanthropic endeavors. I mean, this is something that is out there. These rats, these dogs, they're rampant, they're dangerous, and they, if we leave a door open, they will inevitably sleep, slip in. May I uh, offer a couple of suggestions on this and we'll move on. So Justin, how do we actually guard against this type of teaching? Isn't that just your job? <laughs> Isn't that just your job as the pastor to make sure that none of that gets in here? Uh, Friends, I'm learning with the information that is available to us on the internet these days, my This responsibility isn't limited to what I do behind this desk on Sundays. You have access to more religious and Christian information than any generation in history combined. (laughs) There is all kinds of stuff that is clamoring for your attention. There are algorithms built on the internet to target you and your religious interests. And so no longer is it confined to what the elders allow to be taught in church while that is meaningful. So we have to be on the guard. This isn't just something for pastors. And so negatively, I would encourage you, dear brothers and sisters, to be discerning about spiritual stuff. Be discerning about anything that presents itself as spiritual, as Christian 
blogs, local Bible studies, Christian websites. All that glitters isn't gold, and all that's Christian isn't Christ's. If in doubt, check it out. If you don't know how to check it out, call us. It's kind of what we do. And we love to serve in that way. Can I be just very transparent for a moment? You, you know that in this church's recent history, we actually lost someone over this very thing. Someone who found some interesting teaching on YouTube and began to, to chase it down uh, to the degree that the person was eventually convinced that sin itself uh, like actually didn't exist and that we could overcome it if we tried hard enough. Someone who would deny that the Pauline epistles were inspired, but only the gospels were. But there was never any conversation with us about that. Friends, it is out there. We must be careful. Paul says, look out. Positively, I would encourage you in this way, continue to develop your discernment. The reason why, friends, we offer seminars isn't because we don't have anything better to do on Sunday mornings. We are actually trying to equip you in the most essential way so that you can protect yourself and your family. I mean, there are very intentional conversations that go into what are we going to offer here. Uh, those books that are on that back wall, which represented a substantial investment from this church and that we take a loss on every book, by the way, we make zero money. We lose on average 2 to $3 per book. Why in the world are we doing that? Because we want you to have access to stuff that will develop your discernment, that will help you stay on guard against these encroaching dogs and evildoers and demolishers of the flesh. So Paul says, look out. There, there's, there's this group out there. They'll look religious. They'll look holy on the outside. He says, but you're going to need to guard against that. You're gonna, if you're going to keep your joy in Christ alone, guard against these people who will add to Christ. So watch out for the fake holy club. But he gives us a reminder as well. Look at verse 3. There's a reminder about the true holy club. What does it look like to actually be included in the special people of God? Verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Friends, here's why you should avoid Christ plus movements. You already have the total package through faith in Christ. You don't need anything else. You really do have everything that you need. I know that you're probably, th- well, some of you are more like uh, exegetically minded. You're thinking, why in the world would any of these Philippians have ever been enticed by somebody saying, hey, uh, get circumcised and you're in the special and elite club now? I mean, I'm saying to that, just no thank you. I'm not interested. <laughs> But what was it that would have been the draw for them? Remember I told you a few weeks ago that Christianity was actually outlawed by the Roman government. But Judaism was religio licita. It was approved religion of the empire. It, was, it had their endorsement like, okay, it's okay if you're this. So they're thinking like, oh, well, if we just go ahead and get circumcised, now we're not going to have Rome breathing down our necks, and so maybe things could be a little easier that way. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you can't do that because you actually already have what you need. And here's the deal. If you add anything to it, you don't have it anymore. He says, we who believe in Christ are the true circumcision. Actually, the text doesn't even say that. You know what it says? I mean, the, the, the ESV actually does a good job with it. It says, we are the circumcision. Basically, it's stronger than saying we are the true circumcision. It's saying we're the only circumcision. <laughs> we're the only one that matters. And again, I know that I've, we've got a big cultural gap here this morning. Uh, I, circumcision is just not a normal word that we speak around my kitchen table. I don't know about yours. It's not like, you know, we read about this often. This isn't something that we're regularly talking about. So let's just kind of go in our way back machine for a moment and think, like, how in the world were they thinking about this when they heard it? What were people normally processing when they hear the word circumcision? They are thinking 
especially to a group of people who didn't have a copy of the New Testament yet, and their only Bible was the Old Testament, circumcision is proof positive that you are part of the accepted people of God. It's the sign. Genesis 15. It's the sign that you're one of God's special people. You know, like a Marine would get Semper Fi, like tattooed on his arm. Like, this was the, the tattoo, if you will. This, this was the recognition that you are in the group. And so when Paul is saying, we are the circumcision, he's saying, we are the real group. We are the accepted people. We are the ones that God approves of. We are the true holy club. And the we gets modified. You want to know who that is? He's actually going to give three descriptions of these who are the true circumcision. The first one he mentions there, we who worship by the Spirit of God. Worship by the Spirit of God. This truth is amazing. The word worship we normally think of as singing on Sunday mornings. Probably a better translation of this word just for our purposes this morning is spiritual service. We are the ones who spiritually serve God by the Spirit himself. This word, worship, is the same word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the work or the activity that a priest did in the temple or the tabernacle. It's not just talking about like your everyday job in the Old Testament. It's talking about that which was done before God and specially accepted by him. It was that which was revered. And you know what he's saying here? He's saying we live now in such a way that everything that we do for God is accepted because it is the Spirit of God himself who empowers it. Now that is a powerful thought for a moment. For those of you who grew up in church, maybe you heard Romans 12, 1 and 2 preached often. There's that famous passage where it says, in light of the gospel, in light of everything Christ has done for you, present your body as a living sacrifice. Right? That living sacrifice term is the same term that's used here. It's saying present yourselves as spiritual worship unto God. Just, just live everything for his glory. You know what Paul is saying here? It says the true circumcision. They serve God with every aspect of their lives, and it is accepted because it is the Spirit of God who is actually empowering it. These are... Uh, Judaizers, these religious guys. They thought that they were so holy. They thought that they were so special. And you know what Paul's saying? No, we are the special ones. Not because of what we have done, but because of the Spirit enabling everything that we do for the Lord. Can you let me encourage you for a moment? Do you ever feel sometimes that your spiritual attempts just kind of fall short? Uh, Maybe that uh, personal devotional life that we talked about earlier just isn't as consistent or as qualitative as you would like it to be. Uh, Maybe you come to church on Sunday morning and you're way more tired than you actually intended. That's frustrating for you. Uh, You're not as engaged. It, it, It wasn't as emotionally uplifting as you thought it would be. Maybe you make attempts to like try to serve other people and you think it's supposed to be like the thrill of a lifetime, but it was kind of mediocre. I think we wonder sometimes, like, okay, is what I'm doing for the Lord even counting? And you know what the text says? Yeah, it counts, because the Spirit enables it all. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is if you're in Christ or out of Him. And if you're in Him, if you're trusting in Him alone, everything that you do to serve Him is acceptable by the Spirit that stands in stark contrast with those who are trying to do it on their own. So he says, first, we who worship by the Spirit of God, there's another way that he describes them. The real holy club members also glory in Christ Jesus. Glory in Christ Jesus. You know what glory is? Glory is that which makes someone proud, that which gives someone confidence. For example, it'd be easy for many of us in this room to feel confident on account of how they look, How much money they have, how much they weigh, what they have accomplished, how their kids have turned out, and the list could go on and on, right? You ever know that feeling? You step on the scale after New Year's and you're thinking, I'm a failure. (laughs) Paul says, no, 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 your your glory, your worth, your significance. For those who are in the real holy club, it is only in Jesus. That's what gives them significance. That is what they boast in. That is what they're proud of. That Christ 
has saved them. It is in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 is what Paul is appealing to here. And you may know that passage where the truly wise person boasts not in his wisdom or his might or his wealth, but what? In the Lord. In the Lord. So to put it another way, your glory is what you're most proud of. And for Paul, you're either most proud of Jesus or you're most proud of yourself. He's saying, if you're in the group, this is what your life looks like. You can boast because of Jesus. And then there's one more thing. It's negative. We've had two positives, and here's the negative. Negatively, the real holy club members, they do not put confidence in the flesh. They do not put confidence in the flesh. This is kind of an ironic statement, right? Because if circumcision was the big thing, he's saying, hey, you can't have any confidence in anything that you did to your body. But he's actually speaking to more than just that. He's saying, there is nothing within your human effort that you could possibly like glory in. He says, those who are really in Christ, those who are actually deemed holy by God Almighty, do not glory at all in anything that they do. No human effort, no human striving. There's nothing for them to be proud of. It reminds me of a song that we sometimes sing here. My worth is not in what I own. Listen to these lines. I think it comes straight from this text. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Is that true of you? I want you to take that, and I want you to compare it now to that other group, to the, uh, to the faux holy club, if you will. And notice the differences between the two. You've got this one group that looks religious, and they try to do all kinds of religious stuff, but they are dangerous, and they are defiled, and they are destructive. They are depraved. And then there's this other group. And, and what makes them different is that they only have Christ. The other group has Christ, supposedly, plus all the other stuff, but this group actually has at least less the way it would look on the outside of things. All they have is Jesus, but they have so much more that their actions are accepted on account of the Holy Spirit. Their only boast is in Jesus. They have no confidence in anything that they could humanly do, and they are the real circumcision. They are the ones who are truly holy in God's sight. Friends, if you're here today and you're not in Christ or you don't even know what that means, can I just warn you, don't be so naive as to believe that God cares about any of your religious sentiments or works apart from faith in Jesus alone. It has been the story of human history. We were made to worship and serve God, and yet, you know what? We messed it up. We ruined it because we rebelled against Him. We tried to do things our own way. And God, as a righteous ruler, decided that, no, I'm not going to allow this to stand. You will not rebel against me. And so he said that there would be a penalty for the sin. He imposed it in death, and which would follow by eternal death. And yet he would send his son to come and fix this problem of broken service. We messed it up, but Christ would fix it. So Christ would enter into our condition, and what he would do is repair this whole broken attempt to serve God. And you know what he did? He did it all. Everything that you or I could never do, he did. And all the horrible stuff that we did, he never did. But you know what he did? He paid for it. He paid for it by enduring the wrath of God on the cross and fully satisfying it, and he paid it in full, as evidenced by the fact that he rose three days later. It was a proof that the thing had been totally compensated for, and that any who would believe and trust in this Jesus alone now could finally serve God through him and through him alone. That is the good news, friends. I'll tell you what's some pretty horrible news. If I told you that, yeah, yeah, you believe all that stuff, and then make sure you do X, Y, and Z. That'll put you in a bad spot. That, that, that'll put you in the category of defiled, doing evil, and destructive. This is life or death importance. This is the true holy club. 
So whatever happened with the, um, the Holy Club at Oxford? I told you I'd pick up where we left off. When we last left the story, Charles and John had returned to England. They failed miserably, they had thought. They knew themselves to be outside of God's grace, even though they had made all these religious attempts to be holy. But they came in contact with this group of uh, missionaries. At that time, they, they were known as Moravians. The Moravians did have a good handle on this gospel and faith in Jesus alone, and so they shared that. And, and initially, the, the first brother begins to respond. Here is Charles. Uh, he, he listens to what they say. He's influenced by these Moravian friends. And then he would bear witness to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. May 21st, 1738. He wrote, After trusting in Christ alone, the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And this particular Wesley would go on, listen to this, to write 7,000 hymns for the Church of England. One of those, many scholars believe, is his personal testimony. You'll recognize the lines. He says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. He was in the club through faith in Jesus alone. What about John? It'd be three days later. What those Moravians said stuck with him, and he would write in his journal on May 24th, 1738, that in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface preface to the epistles of the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, uh, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through the faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That was the way that he described it. And then John immediately shared this good news with Charles, and Charles would later write about his brother's conversion this. Towards 10, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends and declared, I believe! (laughs) And we sang with great joy and parted with prayer. The boys would later reflect on this particular experience and they said, before this moment, when they placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they had what they called a fair summer religion. Something that was a convenient season. They were both ordained, by the way, before this. They had both gone to a Christian university. They had both served as missionaries. They both preached, taught, wrote, composed hymns, gave themselves to missionary work, and all to no avail. They were not in Christ until they relied on Christ alone. And so I'd ask you, are you part of that holy club? The Christ alone club. Or is it the Christ plus? If it's the Christ plus, if if you're not sure of even what it means to be in Christ alone, I, I beg of you, before you leave this place today, we'll hang around a long time. You need to talk to a church member or myself or another pastor. Because like now, I mean now, you should turn from your sin and trust in him alone. That's where rescue is found. That's where acceptance from God comes from. And if you're here today and you say, yeah, I'm already in. I'm in. I know. I know that I believe in Christ alone. You don't need to repent. Friends, here's here's your homework assignment. Rejoice. Rejoice. Like, wear a smile on your face and be happy of the fact that eternal wrath has been satisfied and that things are right between you and God forever, not on account of anything that you've done, but on everything that he's done. I totally understand that life stinks these days. I'm kind of tired of hearing about how horrible 2020 has been. We get it. It's a bad year. (laughs) Your health could be dwindling. Your family could be going through a mess right now. Things could be strained at work. I totally get it. And I know I'm going to sound like a preacher for a second, but i got to tell the truth. I know things are hard. I know they're bad. But the Scriptures actually intend for us to find joy in hard times through our relationship with Jesus alone. You understand that Paul is literally in prison and he is facing beheading? I think I have a general idea of what people are going through, but I don't know anybody who's going through that. 
You know what he's saying? Be happy in Jesus. Here's a man who practices what he preaches. Lest this sound too impractical, I, I came across this week a few interesting lines from the old Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. We have his work on our book wall back there. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. There's this interesting passage kind of in the middle of the book where he starts to talk about our relationship with God. And by the way, I'm going to quote it, but he's going to use the word covenant. Our covenant, our relationship with God. And he talks about how Christians are actually expected to find joy and happiness from this covenant. Listen to his admonition. He says, many of you speak of the covenant of God and of the covenant of grace, but you have found it as effectual as this to your souls. You have sucked the sweetness from the covenant and contentment to your hearts in sad conditions. Suck the sweetness from it. I don't, <laughs> that's a great phrase. He says, it is a special sign of true grace in any soul that when any affliction befalls him or her in a kind of natural way, he repairs immediately to the covenant. Just as a child, as soon as ever it is in danger, need not be told to go to his father or mother, for nature tells him so. So it is with a gracious heart. As soon as it is in any trouble or affliction, there is a new nature which carries him to the covenant, this relationship with God and Christ immediately, where he finds ease and rest. If you find that your hearts work in this way, immediately running to the covenant, it is an excellent sign of true grace. Friends, did you know that the reason why Paul is commanding this is because he actually intends us to do it? <laughs> By the way, it's a present active imperative verb. It means keep rejoicing in Christ and keep finding delight in Him. It should be ongoing and continual. And so... In Christ, we have been included in his club. So let us then rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Trinity, God Almighty, continue to teach us that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice, and evidences your love. Help us to make use of it by faith as the ground of our peace and of your favor and acceptance, so that we may always live near the cross. Amen.